0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derishcha, as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the derishcha experiment, the show where we examine the characters and the situations presented in scripture through this lens of life versus death. This week, we will get to finish the chapter that we began last week, and we'll go a little bit into the next chapter of Genesis. And As we finish this chapter, we'll examine the fallout of Jacob's deception that he perpetrated upon his father and upon his brother Esau. Splitting the chapter in this way, it it gives us an opportunity to examine the character of Esau in an isolated manner in some ways, and we'll get to see his reaction to being taken advantage of. So who is Esau, or Esev? He is the older brother the man who should have been the heir, the man who should have carried the blessing of Abraham. If everything went right, if the family had respected tradition and the ways of the world, even the ways of nature, he would have been the one in charge. After all, the blessing was his by right. He deserved it, and it was something that was respected by all cultures. It was his right. Let that sink in. His God-given right as the firstborn. And that right was removed by his brother's deception. Oh sure, Esau had sold his birthright. He wouldn't be as rich as he could have been, but he would still be the master of the family. He would still get the blessing from his father that would plant him solidly as the patriarch for the next generation. Nothing could take that away. It was his right. And yet, It was taken away from him. It was taken away from him through deception and through theft. His weasel little brother lived up to his name once again, and Jacob grasped Esau's heel and tripped him up. He was robbed. His entire future, his status, his honor, gone. Esau has every right to be angry at this point. Who of us would not act in Esau's manner when something that we have longed for and looked forward to with all of our being and actually deserve as a right is suddenly taken from us? Imagine it. You work for a major corporation and you are the next in line for a great promotion, an executive position, the office, the benefits, the respect. You've been working for it, striving for this achievement your entire career, and you are the guy for the job, and it's been promised to you. You walk into your boss's office on the day that it's being made official. This is your moment, and then you learn that one of your subordinates has been given to promotion in your place. You have been betrayed by everyone that you care for. The boss that you've slaved for years to please has given the job to that weasel. I know I would be angry, and you would be angry too. But what do you do with this anger? How do you handle it? Where do you turn? What recourse do you have? Because the decision has been made against you. Now what? Your entire life up to this point has lost its meaning. Everything that you have spent all these years looking forward to is gone in the blink of an eye. Your place, your role, your honor, it now belongs to someone else, someone who stole it, and you can't get it back. So let's read this Parsha and then talk more about Esau and some of the examples that we can glean from his story and his reaction to these events. Genesis 27:30 through28 verse nine. And it came to be, as soon as Yitshak had finished blessing Yaakov, and Yaakov had hardly left the presence of Yitshak his father, that Esav his brother came in from his hunting. And he too had made a tasty dish and brought it in to his father, and said to his father, Let my father rise and eat of his son's wild game, that your being might bless me. And his father Yitshak said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau And then Yitschak trembled exceedingly and said, Who was it then who hunted wild game and brought it to me? And I ate all of it before you came in, and I have blessed him. Yes, he is blessed. And when Asav heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, O my father. And he said, Your brother came with deceit and took your blessing. And Asav said, Was his name then called Yaakov, for he has caught me by the heel these two times. He took my birthright, and see, now he has taken my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Yitschak answered and said to Asav, See, I have made him your master and all his brothers. I have given to him as servants, and I have sustained him with grain and wine. And what then shall I do for you, my son? And Asav said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me me too, O oh, my father. And Asav lifted up his voice and wept. And Yitschak, his father, answered and said to him, See, your dwelling is away from the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heavens from above. And by your sword you are to live and serve your brother. And it shall be when you grow restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And Esav hated Yaakov because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esav said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father draw near. Then I am going to kill my brother Yaakov. And the words of Esav, her older son were reported to Rivka. And she sent and called Yaakov, her younger son, and said to him, See, your brother Esav comforts himself concerning you to kill you. And now, my son, listen to my voice, and rise, flee to my brother Levan and Haran, and stay with him a few days, until your brother's wrath turns away, until your brother's displeasure turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, and I shall send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? And Rivka said to Yitzhak, I am disgusted with my life because of the daughters of Chet. If Yaakov takes a wife from the daughters of Chet like these who are the daughters of the land, what is my life to me? And Yitzchak called Yaakov, and blessed him, and commanded him, and said to him, Do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the household of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take a wife for yourself from there, from the daughters of Lavan, your mother's brother. And El Shaddai bless you, and make you fruitful, and increase you, and you shall become an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your seed with you, so that you inherit the land of your sojournings, which Elohim gave to Avraham. So Yitshak sent Yaakov away, and he went to Padanaram Aram, to Lavan, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rivka, and mother of Yaakov and Esav. And Esav saw that Yitzhak had blessed Yaakov and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a command, saying, Do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Yaakov had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram, so, Asav saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Yitzchak, and Asav went to Yishmael, and he took Machalat, the daughter of Yishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neviot, to be his wife, besides the wives that he had. So, first off, let's start from connecting the end of last week's parsha to this week's, and let's ask the question Does Jacob ever receive the benefits of the words of the stolen blessing? one can make the case that he received the physical bounty part of last week's blessing. But the authority part was never realized in Jacob. In fact it's his son Joseph who receives great authority after going through great hardship and evil. And then later it's his son Judah that becomes king in six hundred years to eight hundred years later. In fact, I myself I made that case last week. But as I was going through this week's Parsha, I read CHAPTER twenty eight, verses three through four. There's a second blessing that's spoken over Jacob by his father, and this one is profound because this blessing is realized before the end of chapter 28. Before this chapter ends, Jacob will receive the blessing of Abraham and of God himself, and by the end of the next chapter, chapter 29, Jacob will have two wives and his first four sons. The blessing that he stole, even the part that he does receive in his lifetime, he does not begin to gain any benefit from it until after these two are achieved. Now, I've spoken on the topic of blessing in various ways over the last couple of weeks, so we're not going to spend a whole lot more time on this today. I simply wanted to point out that the second blessing and the immediacy with which the terms of the second blessing is carried out in the text. As we examine the pages of Scripture, it's human tendency to look at the lives of the heroes and to identify with the heroes in some way. Because we are all heirs of the promise after all, right? We are all the blessed people. We all want to be Jacob. It's our tendency to say, well, I don't necessarily like the means that he used to accomplish this, but what's done is done and now I get to benefit from it. It was God's will and now the world will simply have to live with it. I, personally, I get to live in the bounty of this promise now that was stolen through deception. But my question is, how often do we look at the story and identify with Esau? The thing is, is that there's likely just as much of Esau in each one of us as there is of Jacob. In fact, in many of us, there's even more of Esau than there is of Jacob. And we've all faced this situation where we have been taken advantage of by another, where we have had something that we wanted taken from us. And the thing is, on one level, what's occurring here is something that we've seen before, and it's a pattern that occurs through all of Scripture. Last week, we looked at the continuation of the pattern that we saw way back in Genesis 3, the pattern of deception and temptation. And we looked at how Jacob, Rebekah, and Isaac repeated the story of the garden. There was a command that was recounted incorrectly. There was a half-hearted attempt to resist the enticement to do something wrong. Someone then defined good using all of their senses except for the one that truly reveals the truth of a matter. Food was eaten, which brought shame upon the eater and another one. And then in this chapter, an exile is enacted. This week, as we examine the text, we find echoes of the very next story of Scripture, the story of Cain and Abel, and there are many ways in which this story shadows the story of Genesis 4. The younger brother brings an offering to the father, and the father accepts the offering of the younger and not the offering of the older. The younger brother brings an offering from the flock, and the older brother's offering is from the field. In the acceptance by the father of the meal from the younger brother, the older brother grows angry. He plots in his heart, and a threat of death hangs over the younger. The older brother receives a curse away from the goodness of the land, and the younger brother finds death, this time in the form of exile rather than in a physical death. And the older brother moves east and finds a bride. Now the parallels in these two stories begin a comparison of the characters in these two narratives. Who remembers what we talked about all the way back in Genesis 4? This is something that was covered back in Episode 3, so if you have a hard time remembering it, you can go back and listen to that. But in this chapter of Genesis, we talked about how it was that God can look towards one person over another. Especially when there seems to be no real reason for this choice. Even more so when the person who God chooses to elevate is put in a place that we ourselves wish or desire to be in. We talked about our own response in this situation as we examined the negative example presented in the actions of Cain. Well, this week's passage takes these ideas and it morphs them some. It gives us a slightly different view of this topic that might surprise some of us when we really stare at this idea full in the face. Let's hold on to this for a moment and we'll return to it shortly. So let's look at a connected idea that also provides for us the contrast to shift our perspective slightly and see that Cain and Abel as a sort of Rosetta Stone of sorts. The source of the information that we can use to decipher this new occurrence. But at the same time, it's a spotlight that shows us that this situation is not exactly the same as the previous. So, in chapter 25, as part of the prophecy that Rebekah is given regarding her sons, we read, the older will serve the younger. Now, the idea that is represented all throughout scripture is not simply that the older will serve the younger, but rather that the younger will be elevated to a place of honor, respect, and authority above the older. The idea being similar to what we read in 1 Samuel 16, as Samuel is passing before Jesse's sons. The firstborn of Jesse, Eliab passes before Samuel, and Samuel thinks to himself, Surely the inordinate one of Hashem is before me. And God responds to this thought by saying in verse 7, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, But Hashem said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for not as man sees, for man looks with the eyes, but Hashem looks at the heart. God does not choose using the same standards as men. God does not choose according to the traditions or even the philosophy of men. In fact, if we examine scripture closely, we will discover that this is the standard means of operation when it comes to God. And we see it from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, two creatures were created, man and beast. and It was God's pleasure to choose men to rule over the beasts and to give them the authority to rule over all living creatures. The last born of creation became the ruler. In Genesis 4, we read the story of Cain and Abel, in which we've already touched on. Later on in Genesis, we've got Isaac as the second born of Abraham, elevated over Ishmael, his firstborn. Here we have Jacob and Esau. Joseph was elevated above his brothers as a direct result of their deception. Ephraim is elevated above Manasseh by Jacob in Genesis 48. Judah was elevated above his brothers in Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49. Moses was given a place of honor before God over his brother Aaron. Israel, the youngest and smallest of nations, was given the status of firstborn by God. The Levites were chosen from Israel to replace the firstborn of each family to act as priests before God. We've got Gideon in Judges 6, 14-15, and Hashem turned to him and said, Go in the strength of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O oh Hashem, with what do I save Israel? See, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Saul and the tribe of Benjamin, not only the youngest son of Jacob, but the smallest tribe since they were nearly wiped out by the rest of Israel a few generations earlier in the book of Judges. Saul chosen as king over all of the tribes. Sure, he's a king like the nations, tall, strong, handsome in his appearance, and yet he's still the king chosen by God from the least likely place. David, as we read earlier in 1 Samuel, chosen over his brothers to be the king to unite Israel. Solomon, the second son of Bathsheba, was chosen over his older brothers to be David's heir. This idea and concept is not one that's revealed in Scripture only in literal ways, though. If we take this idea and we look at it abstractly, we can see that this idea follows in more ways than just simple human succession. Back on day 1 of Genesis, Darkness ruled, and light was introduced to the universe as a second born of sorts. And yet we read that in the end of days, darkness will be no more when the new earth is realized. In Revelation 22, verse 5, And night shall be no more, and they shall have no need of a lamp or the light of the sun, because Hashem Elohim shall give them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And then on day three, the sea precedes the land, and the land becomes, in a way, a second born of the earth. In the new creation, what will rule the earth? Revelation twenty-one, one, And I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. For the former heaven and the former earth passed away, and the sea is no more. The land will be elevated over the place of the sea, and the younger will rule the older. And this model is something that we too experience in our own lives. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that we are no longer to walk as the Gentiles who are in darkness. But he then goes on to say that we are to put off the old man and put on the new man we are to rule over our old man nature the nature of adam is to be replaced and it's to be ruled by our second adam nature that has been gifted to us by god the old adam is ruled by the new adam the material is to be ruled by spiritual matters in first corinthians fifteen forty-five through 47. And so it has been written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual, however, was not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, earthy. The second man is the master from heaven. All through scripture, the theme flows. It's what comes second that is mature and complete, and it is this that is elevated into a place of honor. Early on, it's steeped in this concept of the older being ruled by the younger, by the natural order being replaced with a spiritual order. To us, though, to human thought, this is anathema. The older should rule and have authority. That's simply the way the world works, right? Because it's natural and it's given by God. It is, in fact, a right. Esau had every right to the blessing and the authority that came with it. And what I'm about to say may get uncomfortable, especially in our rights based society where we're always arguing over what other people owe us because it is our right. In America, we recognize three primary rights. Life. You have it. You have the right to live and to experience life because it is in you. No one is to infringe upon this right by revoking it. Then there's liberty, the right to be free and to Be in charge of your own destiny. No one can own you or hinder your movement. Then finally, there's the pursuit of happiness, the right to attempt to find meaning in your life through whatever means necessary. As long as you don't infringe upon the rights of others, you will not have these rights infringed, and anyone who does so is a criminal. We then add a second layer of rights to the Constitution. There's the Bill of Rights, which includes speech, self-defense, and even the right to rebellion, a right to security of our property, possessions, privacy, and more. Well, in the ancient Near East, the rights of the firstborn were the inalienable, God-given rights. Jacob taking his brother's blessing would be the same as someone infringing on the rights that have been codified in our Constitution. This is larger than someone simply getting what you wish to be, or God blessing someone with good looks or intelligence. This is greater than someone getting the position that you want at work. This is deeper than what Cain faced. This is a direct infringement on Esau's right as the eldest. This is someone imprisoning you when you've done nothing wrong. This is a government dictating what can be said, burning books that are deemed unacceptable. This is having your guns removed from your property by men with guns. This is the theft of all of your belongings. This is slander of your reputation on the grand scale with no legal recourse. This is having everything that you have saved for retirement taken away and being forced to continue to work until the day you die. As I read through that, many of you felt an uncomfortable twinge rise up in you. Just a small flutter in your gut at just the mention of these things. Now take that feeling and multiply it by a thousand. Outright justified outrage and a sense of betrayal by your entire family. Imagine living in the face of these circumstances in a society where honor is everything. Was Esau mad at this deception? Oh dang Skippy, he was. Did he have a right to be angry? Yes, yes he did. He had every right and justification to be enraged and to seek redress and justice. The trajectory of his life was just shifted away from his own greatness. And rather than blessing, Esau received a curse. The terms of that curse? You will live away from the fatness of the earth and the dew of the heavens. You will not be able to live off of the land. In fact, You're going to have to fight just to live. You'll be a servant of the one who just took everything from you, and you will have to serve your brother. And in order to escape, you will have to take up arms and rebel against your brother's authority, because you have no recourse but violence, and it is violence that will define you. Esau went from expecting all of the good things of life to receiving the hardest existence imaginable. Esau's hope for the future was gone in an instant. And how did he respond? Well, he responded in the manner of Cain. He comforted himself with the idea that his dad would soon be dead. And when that happened, then he could kill his brother without hurting his father or his new place in the family. At that point, he would be free to seize control, to throw off his brother's yoke. So let me ask you, if your rights were taken away, what would you do? If everything that you had been planning on was stolen, what would be your recourse? If the world of the Constitution disappeared in an instant, in the instant that everything should have become yours and should have been awesome, would you plan on how to kill and get rid of the perpetrators? how to get even, to perhaps make excuses along the line of preventing them from being able to hurt anyone else? Would you rebel against the new order? Would you exert your rights? God gave you those rights, after all. It's your duty to protect your rights from those who might steal them. Even if it means rebelling against a corrupt government, a government bent on deceiving everyone, on making you into cattle or sheep to be exploited. This is what we're told. We need to fight back. We need to preserve our freedoms. We need to preserve our constitution and our country. This is what's pushed at us as the normal response in many circles. I have been deceived. My rights have been trampled. Now it's time to get even, to take matters into my own hands. But what do we read in Romans? Not Romans 13, but Romans 12, 19 through 20. It says, Beloved, do not revenge yourselves. But give place to the wrath. For it has been written, Vengeance is mine. I shall replace as Hashem. Instead, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. What was Yeshua's response when his right to liberty was revoked? What was his response when his right to life was being slowly drained from him? Did he fight? Did he complain in any way? Did he seek recourse? Did he call a thousand angels to his side to assert his rights and to destroy those who would take them from him? No, he didn't. Vengeance and the return of rights belongs to one alone. When we have our most closely held hope and identity transgressed by another, what should be our reaction? The way of Messiah is to allow God to take care of it. Esau is not able to kill Jacob, even though he wants to. Jacob runs away. And it's because of this that a situation is created where vengeance can be visited in kind upon Jacob by God. And that's what we'll see next week. When God takes vengeance, he does so in kind. But we don't have to wait until next week. We can catch a glimpse of that even this week. Because as Rebecca was convincing Jacob to take this blessing through deception, Jacob responds that if I am caught, I will be cursed in last week's text, right? Well, Rebecca then states that if he is cursed, then it will pass on to her. In the English, I think we miss just how profound this statement is. Because in the English, being cursed is to have something harmful directed towards you. But in the hebrew there are multiple words for curse and the word used here is kalal kalal doesn't mean to have someone speak a curse over you as in some sort of voodoo curse kalal means to make light of something or to make it as nothing and rebecca gets her desire the curse passes on to her as we never hear of her again after this chapter in fact She's only mentioned four more times in the scripture after this chapter. Once she's listed as the sister of Laban, once as the mother of Jacob, once when her nurse dies, and once as the wife of Isaac. Once Genesis ends, Rebecca is only mentioned by Paul once in Romans for the entirety of scripture. She is, in fact, kalal She is made to be nothing in herself. All of her worth after this point comes from her relationship to other people of importance. And in this way we see God repaying Rebecca for her own deception. But even more than that, who was it that defined our God-given rights in the first place? Was it God? Or was it men? If you study the history of this nation, our nation was not founded by Christians as we're commonly told but rather it was founded upon Freemasonic enlightenment principles. And it is this ideology and philosophy that codified these rights for our country. Can they be loosely found in the pages of scripture? Sure. Should we allow human philosophy to determine what our rights are before God? Should we fight to retain these rights? Should we ponder death in our hearts, even if, God forbid, we were to find ourselves facing this choice? Can we perhaps recognize that life itself is not a right? Life is a gift that's given by God and it can be revoked by Him. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Can we recognize that liberty is something that is granted by those whom God has placed in authority? Romans 13.2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Can we recognize that pursuing our own happiness is what leads to so much corruption in our own world? Can we recognize that the only rights that we have in the kingdom economy is the right to serve others and the right to rest on the Sabbath? The right to enjoy what God has entrusted us with. The right to find joy at all times regardless of our circumstances. The right to have justice done on our behalf one day. God's justice. And this, this right here is our responsibility. This is our duty to live the life that God has given us, no matter what it may look like to keep his commands at all times and in every situation, and to rightly discern our surroundings and our time, not to envy the place of others, even if it should have been ours. This idea of human rights is one that I'm not finished with, and we'll visit it again before the end of the book of Genesis. But it's one that we as a people of God we really need to get a proper handle on. Finally, in this Parsha, we see Esau once again. And perhaps, and I'm going to leave it as a perhaps, we really don't know. But at the end of this passage, Esau looks around at his life. He looks at the command that his father gave to Jacob. Go to Laban's house and get a wife. He discerns, he understands finally that he has made some bad decisions in the past. He discovers that his wives that he had taken were not wives that pleased either of his parents. He perhaps grasps a glimpse that he had brought this on himself. And so, if Jacob was sent to mom's brother to get a wife and this was acceptable by mother and father, maybe, just maybe, I, Esau, can begin to fix the bad choices of my past and I can make a restitution of sorts. If Jacob is being sent away to marry from mom's brother's family, then I'm going to go to dad's brother's family and find a wife from there. Perhaps in this way I can begin to rebuild this broken relationship with my parents. Jacob is gone. There's nothing that can be done to him right now. But Esau can work to make this right in some way, to regain a semblance of status and honor before his father and mother at the very least. And that's all that any of us can do. And that's our great responsibility. We can't focus our energy on our rights, on what we are owed. That's greed, and that's envy. We can focus on our responsibilities, though, on fixing our broken relationships, on working to make right the wrongs that we ourselves have perpetrated. If we focus only on how we've been wronged, we will miss many opportunities. Our right, our inheritance, is death and judgment. We deserve nothing more. We have been given the opportunity to start over. We've been given the responsibility to work towards redemption, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. What was the example of Yeshua as He hung on the cross, having every one of the things that we would call His God-given rights revoked? Did He focus on His own pain and the unfairness of it all? Or in his last moments, did he seek reconciliation and redemption for those who had harmed him? Did he say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Did he focus on his rights, or did he focus on his responsibility? In this, he showed us the path of life. And now comes the hard part, the challenge, because we too... Now we get to walk in that path, not concerned with our rights, but concerned with our responsibilities before God and others. And that is no easy thing to do. That's very difficult to accomplish because we've had it ingrained in us that our rights are foremost and that if they are infringed, then we need to seek recourse. That's not the model we're given. The model we're given is to seek life, not recourse. So De'Resh my friends, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to De'Resh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we De'Resh as we seek life. Shalom.